just a moment longer, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 or take out the handout and follow along in the text there. Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received you. The majority text says you, not us. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received you to the glory of God. Now, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Romans Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received you, to the glory of God. We are reminded that we have been talking about the weaker brother and the stronger brother. And remember that the weaker brother is the one who does not believe all the things that the stronger brother believes that have actually, objectively, been revealed in the Word of God. So you are stronger in faith if you believe more of the revealed truth. You are weaker in faith if you believe less of the revealed truth. Therefore, receive one another. Right, The, the stronger should receive the weaker, and the weaker should receive the stronger. Just as Christ also received you. Now, quick question. Do you think Christ is stronger than you in the faith? or weaker than you in the faith. So if you think you're stronger in the faith, then be like Christ and receive the weaker brother. Now, receive one another, just as Christ also received you to the glory of God. The receiving of one another, again, is a reception in membership, a reception in communion. And it is a reception in life. It is caring for each other. It is being hospitable to one another. It is seeking each other's good. It is being a true friend and not seeking the harm of that brother. And so, the reception of one another is a reception of one another into each other's lives. They're treating each other not as the vile ones, but as those who should be brought into the holy space brought into our lives, brought into fellowship, so that we can work together to the glory of God. We receive each other, not just to receive each other. This is not a feel-good, everybody's welcome, whatever. We don't have a rainbow flag on the church. What you do is you say, come, let's acknowledge the truth together, 
Let's pursue the goal together. And let's apply the commandments of God in order to pursue the goal. And then, when we disagree about the means of how to get there, let's argue until we die. That arguing until you die is how you increasingly come to unity to be able to pursue to the glory of God. And hopefully what will keep happening is you'll start trading places who is the stronger and weaker brother. And as you grow and you have something to share, you bear with the weaknesses of the weak and you help to share that so that they become stronger. The reception of the weak is in order to grow in strength. The reception of the strong is in order to learn from them and to be able to work with them. And there's a division of labor, and there's different gifting. And so where one is weak, the other is strong, and vice versa. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received you to the glory of God. We receive each other for the purpose of the glory of God. We receive each other in order to glorify God together. And so we need to understand That means our goal is to receive each other, not just for the reception of each other's sake. It is for the purpose of growing in the knowledge of God ourselves and for spreading the knowledge of God together by applying the means that he has commanded. Verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant, a deacon, a minister. The word minister means servant. The word deacon means servant. So the most literal English translation is servant. The word in the Greek is deacon. Christ has become a deacon to the circumcision for the truth of God. Now, the idea of his service, Christ came in order to serve the circumcision. He came in order to serve the church in its infancy that had the old ceremonies. And so in serving the church in its infancy, the goal is to take a church in its weakness and bring it along to strength. And that transference into a position of strength occurs in the giving of the new covenant, the new administration, and that giving of the Spirit in the context of it. The new administration is outward signs. It's a changing of the old outward signs for new outward signs. Those outward signs are the ordinances of God. They relate to the third commandment strongly. These are the things where we have the name of God marked on us. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word, praying to the Father in the name of Christ. These things, there's a name of God that's associated with them. And so when we have the name of God... On us in the new administration, we are saying that we are in a stronger position. That we're in a stronger position than the man who is the best man born of men, John the Baptist. We are in a stronger position than him. Being in the new covenant, the claim is that our gifts are greater than the gifts that John the Baptist had. And so we are the stronger brethren in the history of the church. And so we ought to accomplish greater things. And so having greater gifting, greater responsibility follows. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, to the Jewish church, the old covenant church. And that circumcision is a marker on the individuals that marks them as the people of God. And it's a symbol 
of the covenant of grace, and it points to the future generation of a child who would bleed for the sins of those people. We are the baptized. We are the new covenant church. The nations are being baptized. Jesus became a servant to the old covenant church. And in the context of what's been discussed in Romans, the concern of the weaker brother is the old covenant Christians who don't understand that they can eat pig and that they don't need to require circumcision of new converts. Right? Acts 15 explains that in more detail. And so the circumcision, the old covenant church, these are the ones that Christ came to serve. And so that's an example for us of serving each other who are weaker in the faith. He did it to be an advancer of the truth of God. Look at the text. I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. So how should we interact with Christians who have less knowledge than we do? As servants for the truth of God. To confirm the promises made to the fathers. So Christ came and he served for the purpose of advancing the truth of God and in order to fulfill the promises that were made to the fathers. Do you think that by serving each other, by serving the weaker brother, that we have the ability to fulfill any promises of God? What promises has God made? Has he promised that he will bring the nations Has he promised that he will cause every knee to bow in the name of Christ? Has he promised to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh? Has he promised to sanctify his people? Has he promised to cause them to bear fruit? Has he promised to bring about the filling of the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea? He has promised all of these things. And if we serve the younger brother the weaker brother, forgive me, if we serve the weaker brother, then the result is that it helps to bring about the promises of God. Not that God needs us, but He chooses to use us and predestines us to walk in good works that confirm and fulfill the promises that He made to the fathers. Now, lest you think that these are only promises in the New Covenant, what we have is a list of verses that prove that this has always been promised, that the Gentiles would be brought in. So we'll be following there. And so it says, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. That's the fulfilling of the promises to the circumcision, the promises to the fathers, and that includes a promise that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So, page 2. As it is written, what a glorious phrase. You want to know something is true? Is it written? As it is written, verse 10, and again he says, verse 11, and again, verse 12, and again, Isaiah says. So what we have here are four 
it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. And what's fascinating is, it says, as it is written, and then in verse 10, and again he says, well, Psalm 48 was not written by the same author as Deuteronomy 32. Not humanly, anyways. The assertion here is the assertion that the scriptures are the word of God. It's the same author. Half a millennium apart. The same author. And then we have Psalm 67, same author. And Isaiah, same author. But it says, Isaiah says, and the point here is, notice the word again, (laughs) and again, Isaiah says, so how do we deal with that? If we have something from David, something from Moses, and something from Isaiah, Paul is both acknowledging the human authorship of Scripture and the divine authorship of Scripture. These are the words of God. And sometimes people have this view of inspiration and the infallibility of the Scriptures, and they'll say that this was made up in the 19th century at Princeton, which is laughable. The Apostle Paul clearly taught it, and the Old Testament clearly taught that doctrine. So, if we see this doctrine of inspiration, that these are the words of God, we also have the acknowledgement of the individuals, and we realize that God makes individuals like a man might make a pen. God made Isaiah to write the book of Isaiah. God made Paul to write his epistles. And God made Moses to write the Torah. God makes men so that they will be the authors he wants to write his words. So their personalities are exactly the way he wants them to be so that his word will be delivered in exactly the tone and style he wants. The level of control. We, We sometimes imagine... God is in an office, he has a cigar, and he's saying, write this down. And so, in between puffs, he gives line by line. Now sometimes, he does just give line by line. I said this, write it down. But the other times, what he does, is he causes the prophet to formulate the words, but they are the words that are given by God, and they are in the way that would fit with the personality of that author. It is words from God, and it manifests God's glory by showing the personality of the writer. And so he predestines every trait of that person, and he predestines every jot and tittle coming from the pen. And so we get this word, and not one jot or one tittle will pass away. This is the word of God. So as it is written... For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The idea here is that David will confess to God in the midst of the Gentiles, not in the sense that he'll just be surrounded by enemies in Psalm 23. This isn't a table being set before him in the presence of his enemies. This is him praising God with friends. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The idea that a singing to God among the Gentiles, it's with them as an assembly. You might go, that seems a bit of a stretch, Paul. Seems like 
There's some multiple possible meanings here, and maybe you're just kind of putting that there. So he goes, okay, okay, okay. Let's go to Deuteronomy then. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Ooh, now the Gentiles are the ones rejoicing. And they're doing it with his people. Well, maybe they're not really his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Oh, no reference to anybody else now. It's just praising and lauding by Gentiles. And the Jews are maybe implied in the all peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. Jesse, good Jew. And he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. Yes, we will dominate the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Hmm. This is not just an oppressive boot on servants. These have hope in the same God, the same Messiah, the same theanthropic mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That root of Jesse is the one in whom they have hope. And so, what we have here is a demonstration that the Jews, who were the stronger not even stronger brethren, just stronger and brethren, but the Gentiles weren't brethren. Right? The difference there was not a stronger and weaker brother. It was, we are brethren and you are pagans. And so this idea of coming to minister to the Gentiles, and now that the Gentiles are elevated, and that the Jews, many of them had a hang-up in understanding that the Old Covenant was passing away, Now the Gentiles, having this new exalted position and not having the hang-up about the old administration of the covenant, are to be, as stronger brothers, careful to work with those Jews and to receive them. Verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the God of hope. He is the cause of our hope, and He is the basis for our hope. Amen. Our hope is a gift from Him, and the only reason to have hope is God. May He fill you with all joy. Joy comes from believing the truth about God and taking His name without hypocrisy to the lips. We're also asking Him to be, Paul is asking that we would be filled with peace, all peace. Peace comes first from the ordering of the soul and seeing the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and then in seeing the purpose and meaning we are to seek in the whole of life, the glory of God. And then peace extends outwardly by degrees in working to subdue the world and to disciple the nations around us. So there's this call. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now our hope is in the fact that God is going to glorify himself. Our hope is in the fact that he not only is going not only has he given us faith already, he's going to preserve us, he's going to sanctify us, he will glorify us, and he is going to increasingly spread the gospel. He's going to increasingly fill the earth with the knowledge of him. He will cause nations to covenant, he will cause kings to kiss the sun. He will bring about a filling of the earth with the knowledge of him. 
And so we hope in the success of the glory of God. We hope in the work of dominion being empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. We hope in the work of discipleship. We hope that Christ will reign. We hope that the church will subdue the enemies of the church under the feet of the church, as we're told in Psalm 47. And so what we have is a hope that God will accomplish what he has promised, and that should bring joy and peace. And what God has already done should give us joy and peace. And so, the idea of having joy and peace, we are pushed to have this idea of being filled with all joy and peace in believing. Justification is by faith alone. Joy comes by faith. Peace comes by faith. And the increase of faith brings the increase of joy and peace. It comes... Not only to the individual internally, but it also helps to spread. As you take the ordinances of God and use them with integrity, use them with faith, the result is that it spreads that joy, it spreads that peace. So, we have forgiveness in Christ. We see purpose and meaning that we're to seek. And peace extends outwardly by degrees. So there's this prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now it goes beyond that. Comma. That you may abound in hope. May the God of hope may fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you would abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The effectual cause of the increase of our faith is the work of the Spirit to illuminate our minds. And as believers, as we seek to apply the ordinary means, if we think the ordinary means will automatically produce more faith in us and increase our hope, we are applying to ordinances divinity. That is what Rome does when it makes baptism automatically regenerate. That's what Rome does when it says that the Lord's Supper is something that, that inherently gives grace to the soul. These are outward and ordinary means of grace. The preaching of the word is an outward and ordinary means of grace. And people can hear and be washed and eat till their stomachs are full and not gain a single proposition of truth in their minds. And so we pray for the blessing of God that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see that we would believe. And so Paul is praying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we have faith and therefore have increasing joy and peace and we have hope that God will accomplish his purposes and therefore will accomplish our good, We can go out and be more productive. We can do more. We can be useful to each other. And having received each other, we can be useful to subdue the earth and disciple the nations and fill the earth with the glory of God. And so that cooperation together by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the giving of an increasing knowledge of the truth, so that joy and peace overflow and there's an abounding of hope, that is what we are called to and why we should care about the weaker brother and the stronger brother, and why we would ever spend the time to deal with each other when we are all so annoying. (laughs) 
So let's move to the doctrine. Doctrine, we're talking about the third commandment. The third commandment requires the use of means that God has appointed for the purpose of knowing and acknowledging him with a right attitude, the attitude of integrity, on page 3. That would be opposed to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from the word um, associated with the idea of a mask. Um, and the, the idea of a mask, a hypostasis, is a, a personality that an actor has. Okay, so on the, on the Greek stage, with drama, with tragedy and comedy, you have you know, the symbols of the, the, the frowning mask and the smiling mask. And those masks are symbols of theater. And so that, those symbols, those are hypostasis. And the one who is under the mask is the hypocrite, the actor. And so the hypocrite is the one that wears the mask. Hypocrisy is wearing the mask of a profession, a claimed intention, with the inward intention of the opposite. Now, Christianity, we, we, you know, we, we, church is always accused of being hypocritical. If a church is self-righteous and claims to be righteous, it is certainly hypocritical. If the church claims, we know we are sinners, we know we ought to do better, we are forgiven in Christ, and we seek to do better, that is not hypocrisy. That is not hypocrisy. When a person claims to believe those things and does not believe them, that's hypocrisy. The world is so delighted with the term hypocrisy. It loves to take it upon its lips. There are, you feel like there should be singles coming out about hypocrisy, right? These, these entire albums dedicated to it, the, the joy of calling Christians hypocrites. It is an apparently universal impulse in our culture that if anybody says, don't do this, it's evil and it will hurt you, hypocrite. Right? That's the response. Claiming that something is evil does not make you a hypocrite. Even if you yourself do it, if you acknowledge that this is wrong and I want to stop and this is horrible and I need it to get away from me and I want help to get away from it and you should not do it either, that is not hypocrisy. That's desperation. But the thing that's dangerous is to take the word of God under the lips and to not mean it. We are to use the means that God has appointed to know and acknowledge him with the right attitude of integrity, not hypocrisy. What is integrity? Integrity is a concern for consistency. It is the concern for logical coherence. It is the concern to be a person who thinks a thing, says that thing, and acts upon that thing. We should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the possession of him. And we possess God by knowing God. We should seek to grow in the knowledge of God and to share the knowledge of God. That's the first commandment. We should do that by the means that God has appointed. That's the second commandment. With integrity instead of hypocrisy. That's the third commandment.
To use means that God commands with hypocrisy makes the gospel look ugly and dead and brings curse upon ourselves and others. Now, I just explained to you a stark distinction between integrity and hypocrisy, and now I want to add some nuance. Though it is possible to confess a truth and then act contrary to it and not be a hypocrite, but instead be simply one who is in desperation, there is a sort of hypocrisy across time. Because at one moment you say it and are acting on it, and then later you deny it by your action. And so the inconsistency across time of thought, where at one moment I have a strength in believing that such and such action is wrong, and I'm not doing it, and instead I'm pursuing the opposite virtue, at the next moment I am weak, and I do the very thing I condemn with my mouth. And so, in a sense, we ought to be stable. And because of the lack of integrity and consistency across time, there is a sort of hypocrisy. And so, to others, hypocrisy in the moment versus your inconsistency across time is hardly distinguishable. God knows the difference. And the one with faith is not justified by his works. He's justified by grace, through faith, in Christ, apart from the works of the law. But when we violate the law, it makes the gospel look ugly. It makes our profession look dead. And it brings curse on ourselves and others. For us, if we're believers, that curse is meant for our good as a discipline. And if the other person's a believer around us, that curse is meant for their discipline. But if we are not believers, and if we are taking the name of God in vain around others who are not believers, it intensifies curse for the damnation of those souls. And woe to him who brings that stumbling. We are called to use means that God commands with integrity. And if we use hypocrisy, if we, if we use these things with hypocrisy, it makes the gospel look ugly. It makes God look ugly. It makes the gospel look dead and not powerful rather than a word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It brings curse upon the one who uses it in vain and those who are around Now, on the other side, using the means that God has commanded with integrity makes the gospel look beautiful and living and brings blessing upon ourselves and others. So, the third commandment, what is the wording that's given to us in Scripture? Larger Catechism 111 says this, The third commandment is, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. That's Exodus 20, verse 7. Now, this commandment is, as all of the commandments, the highest manifestation of the type. 
each of the commandments tells us what the highest positive or negative manifestation is. So what we have here is a commandment to not use God's name in a worthless way. The name of God is the high point of the word of God. The name of God symbolizes, represents all of the truths about God. So when you say God, what you mean is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and all of the infinite propositions that would be contained in that infinite being. You don't know all those propositions, but it represents all those propositions. And so you manage to take all the truth of God, put it right there, and if you use it in vain, you've managed to take all of the truth of God in one word and use it vainly. It's an impressive feat. You would hardly have imagined that you would have some way of transgressing an infinite number of truths. And yet we do. Now, if the name of God is the high point, each truth of God that's revealed, each proposition that we have, is another thing that we could use in a vain way. All of the, the symbols and ordinances that are given, everything that is lesser than the name, are things that are also offenses, but they are less grievous while still being hell-worthy. And so the commandment here teaches us the high point of this sin. Now, the Shorter Catechism gives us some sort of preparatory things here. I've, I've, I've pulled together at the bottom of page 3 some thoughts here from the Shorter Catechism that I, I hope will help to make the Third Commandment stand out in higher definition. So let's run through these. Shorter Catechism question 1. What is the chief end of man? Okay, so what's the purpose of life? What's the highest end that a human being can pursue? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right, glorifying God is knowing God and showing God. And we can glorify God more fully by knowing Him in such a way as to enjoy Him. So the deeper knowledge of God, the awareness of the gospel, the knowledge of God that is saving, is that which also brings a fruit of joy. I am not saying that joy is a part of the essence of saving faith. I am saying it is a fruit, a necessary fruit. It will necessarily follow. It is not necessary for faith, but it necessarily flows from faith. Question two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God. So we're given the word of God. And then we're told that the scriptures, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the only rule to show us how we are authorized to glorify God and enjoy God. So it shows us the means. Okay, what do the scriptures principally teach? Question three. 
Now, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So questions 1 to 38 of the Shorter Catechism give us a summary of doctrine about God. It gives us uh, you know, the, the idea of the purpose of life, the, the scriptures as the authority. It gives us the doctrine of the Trinity. It gives us the doctrine of the Incarnation. It gives us the doctrine of the Fall and the, the covenantal representation of Adam. It provides for us the covenant of works it teaches us about that second Adam, Jesus Christ, and how he came to deal with the consequences of the fall for his elect so that our sin and misery would be removed. It goes into the offices of Christ as the incarnate mediator and his exaltation and his humiliation. It goes into the golden chain of salvation and talks about tulip. And so we have in that, that knowledge of God, what we're to believe concerning God, captured in 38 very short questions. The degree to which people are baptized, taking the name of God in vain, and take the Lord's Supper in vain in the churches in the world is brought painfully to mind when you realize how short those 38 question and answers are. And you realize the degree to which the church is filled with people who do not know those basic doctrines. The church in America and throughout the world is filled with people who have no idea what the Christian faith is. And so there is a taking of the name of God in vain an ignoring of the importance of oath-taking, and a taking of oaths without knowledge. More than that, when we take the Lord's Supper, we recommit to pursue obedience to God. And so the duty that God requires of man is communicated in the Ten Commandments, and that's summarized for us in questions 39 to 81. But then also, how do we, what are we commanded to do in terms of the second commandment? What are the means by which we worship God? Well, we, with faith and repentance, take in the word, use the sacraments, and pray. And so how ought we to pray? How should we use the sacraments? How should we approach the word? These things are laid out there. So the Shorter Catechism is a document that contains within it the very basic elements of the Christian religion. And it communicates it in very simple language and is so small that it is contained in this booklet. And this has proof text, so frankly, it would take about a third as many pages if you didn't have the proof texts. The name of God is taken in vain in a horrifying way with the level of ignorance. The amount of paid staff and buildings, the amount of money that gets poured in to churches in America is astounding. The seminaries that exist in America, the amount of money that goes into these religious things you know, as a businessman, I like KPIs. I like key performance indicators, right? So I have a, a here's a key performance indicator for a church, okay? How many propositions of truth 
are taught to how many minds per dollar? How many propositions of truth communicated to how many minds per dollar spent? If you try to evaluate that and you start to look around at the dearth of truth coming from pulpits that are elaborate in elaborate buildings, the degree to which that is true, that we take the name of God in vain in the church, even in the evangelical church, even in reformed churches, That's a devastating indictment. So question 54, what's required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. What's forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbids all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. What are the things whereby he makes himself known? His names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Where are those things explained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? Now, the Bible's a lot bigger than the Shorter Catechism. The Shorter Catechism is not the authority, but insofar as it accurately communicates the content of scripture, and change my mind, there's not a single error in the Shorter Catechism. Insofar as it accurately communicates the doctrine of Scripture, it's giving to us a very short summary, an organized form, to think about those key doctrines. And so, if we can't get those key doctrines straight, then why do we think we'll get a thousand-page book? So this idea of getting the basic doctrine, getting the book, we are to devote our lives to that. And so if we make profession, if we are baptized, if we take the Lord's Supper, how do we make sure that we are not taking the Lord's name in vain? We do it by seeking to have increasing meaning, increasing understanding. We seek to have more doctrine, more truth applied to more areas of life with increasing consistency across time. Now we can look out at the condition of the Evangelical and Reformed Church abroad. The question is, for you, what about your life? If someone had a tape recorder of your thoughts, what would be the consistency with which you interpret all of your experience with the profession that you make? What would be the frequency with which you seek to apply the law of God to the choices that you make? Not in just a general way, but trying to think about how do I know what is right with rigor? How do I apply the law of God in detail to the details of my own life? And not just in a way where I think about it woodenly, but think about it with the goal in mind. So the degree to which we do that with our own thoughts is the degree to which we are not taking the Lord's name in vain. But every second, every choice, every thought that doesn't have that context 
And that intention is a taking of the name of God in vain. Because we are marked. We are baptized people. We are people who recovenant feast after feast after feast. Question 101. What do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is, Hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he makes himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. So we're asking that he'd help us to use all that he's given to us, all of his ordinances, everything he's entrusted for our use, everything that's given to us in the second commandment for the displaying of the knowledge of God and the spreading of the knowledge of God, that we would use those in such a way that they bring glory to his name. And the law of God is sufficient to cover all of life. Since the law of God is sufficient to cover all of life, there is no area left untouched by the means of making God known. And that's the regulative principle of life, that we take the law of God and we see it applied in detail to every choice. So drawn out deeper. Question 112, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment, this is page 4, the third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. By a holy profession, an answerable conversation to the glory of God, and the good of ourselves and others. I've got here the proof texts, and if you start to leaf through these papers, you will quickly see that there are far more texts than we will get through today. You can see that all the way through most of page 6 there, we have the proof texts for that first chunk. And the idea, the third commandment requires the name of God to be used in a holy way, in a reverent way. That means that we are to use the name of God in a way that focuses on the goal and focuses on not allowing a perversion, a twisting, a profaning of that name, a dirtying of that name. We are to use God's name in a holy way, in a way that's focused upon his glory. We use his name in such a way that we are trying to grow in the knowledge of God. We use his name in such a way that we're trying to help others to see God more rightly. And we use it in a reverent way. We use it in a way where we acknowledge his power, his authority, and that we ought to be afraid. This is the name. This is the name. And to use it vainly, to use it wrongly, is not a thing that we can expect to escape. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. People can blaspheme. They can take the name of God vainly, and they can expect that perhaps they might escape men. But they will not escape the one who sees all. And so we are left with the terrifying reality that this is the name of the one who is to be feared. And so we use his name in a way where we want to see his name magnified and where we recognize that the wrong use of his name is to be feared. Even as believers, we are to fear the wrong use of his name, not because we might lose our salvation, but because there is a disciplining rod that is in the hand of God and it is a painful thing when applied. And so the fear that God would discipline us not thinking that he disciplines us out of hatred. But even children who know their parents love them would prefer to not have the sting of the rod. The third commandment requires that the name of God be used in a holy and reverent way. That the titles of God be used in a holy and reverent way. The way we should use God's name is in such a way as to talk about the one who has the attributes the name represents, and his titles are ways of trying to magnify his name, the greatness of his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christ is a title. He is the Lord, and he is the Christ. Amen. He is the triple anointed. He is the prophet above all prophets, and the priest above high priests, and he is the king of kings. The name Christ means that. And so we should say it with meaning and know that when we say Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation, we are saying the Lord, Yahweh is salvation, is the prophet, priest, king. Amen. And so we have the meaning in our minds of his work and what he does. And so we want to use words with understanding. And when we use them, when we add words, it should be in order to increase our understanding and the understanding of others. When we speak, we teach ourselves. And so we ought to speak in such a way that we encourage ourselves to have a right understanding. The attributes of God. When you talk about God, you can apply his individual attributes, even though the name represents them all. You might say God Almighty in order to think about the fact that he is the all-powerful God. Well, God is by definition the Almighty One. Is that just a repetition of words, the repeating of sounds without purpose? It's to remind us of some aspect of God. The ordinances of God. We think about the fact that there's an ordinance of God. We say God's law or the law or this commandment. When we talk about the commands, sometimes we need to connect it with the name of God. The scriptures do that frequently. Do such and such for I am the Lord. How often have you seen that? And so that principle... That idea that we think about the ordinances of God, the commandments of God as means of glorifying God, and how that relates to the name. His word communicates particular truths in more or less condensed ways. You'll find parts of the word that are plainer, simpler, more broken down, and parts that are more complex. The sacraments themselves are emblems of the whole covenant of grace. You know, we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the, the old berit is the Hebrew, the berit, which means covenant. And then the new dietheke, which means covenant. 
It's a testament. It'd be much better if we had the Old Covenant and New Covenant as the way of thinking about it. The, the Old Covenant and New Covenant are the two administrations of the covenant of grace. The whole Bible is the covenant of grace. We have the content of the Bible is the covenant of grace. And when we receive that, we need to realize the sacraments are the signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And so the sacraments emblemize the whole content of the covenant. Now, there's special emphasis. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And that's the centerpiece of the covenant of grace. That Jesus Christ paid for your sins. Every one of your sins. Yes. That one. And so we have these covenant signs that represent the whole covenant of grace. When we pray, we pray to the God we have been taught about in the name of the mediator of the covenant. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the triune God is involved in our prayer. We worship the triune God in our prayer in the ways that are distinctive to the roles of each member of the Trinity. And there is a special calling and appealing to the name of God in prayer. And to do so vainly or without faith how many prayers have you prayed and not expected them to be answered? And yet God is so merciful that he still answers them if they are in accordance with his word. And so we have this mixture of doubt. We ask for God to help us. This mixture of faith. If you're a believer and there's even the seed of faith, this small speck a mustard seed of faith there. He hears the prayers of believers. And yet we pollute our prayers with so much doubt and vain calling upon the name of God. But our mediator that we pray in the name of is so great that our doubting and sin and failure in prayer does not prevent the Father from hearing and answering. We have sworn a covenant of membership. We have, in family relationship, covenantal arrangement in marriage and in children as parts of households. As members of a state, we are a part of a covenant institution. And as individuals, we are in covenant with God. Oaths and vows themselves are a recognizing of covenant obligations, making them more explicit. And vows are promissory oaths to God. These are things that we should use with understanding and that we should be careful to keep. We are not to use lots vainly. You, know, you think about lots and you go, well, in the Old Testament they used lots to figure out, God, should I do this or that? We aren't supposed to do that anymore. At the same time, we are told in the book of Proverbs that the casting of lots can be used to end disputes. And so if you say, if we cast a lot, if it goes my way, this, and if it goes your way, that, we should be very careful to abide by that as though it were the judgment of heaven. The works of God, he creates and he governs what he has created. When we talk about his works, there is a type of confusion that can occur. You can think about his works and you can think the creation itself are the things he's made. But the work of creation is not the things he's made. 
The work of creation is him creating. Think about the difference there. What is the difference between the carpentry item and the carpenter exercising carpentry? The work of creation is God's exercising carpentry. The thing that's left is the item. It's the chair or the table. Right? The creation itself is not the work of creation. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing in the space of, space of six days and all very good. That's the work of creation. So we should deal with his creative act that was done in the past in such a way as to acknowledge it as holy. And we should also think about his ongoing providence. History is not the same thing as providence. History is the events. Providence is God's governing of the events. History is visible. Providence is not. We interpret history from a position of faith and see the providence of God. We see the invisible governing of God, of the visible events. The providence is the governing, not the events themselves. We can talk about the events as being controlled by providence, and so we can talk about a particular event and say that was a remarkable providence. What we're really saying is it's remarkable that God governed the events in such a way for that to happen. Whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known. Well, those are things, anything where God makes himself known should be used in a holy and reverent way. It should be used in a holy, reverent way in how we think about it and how we meditate on it. What's meditation? It's just thinking about it in a sustained way. So we should think about these things in a holy and reverent way. We should think about them in sustained ways in a holy and reverent way. Is this just a, why say that? Why say that? Because you go, well, I could think about God's works and attributes and word in a holy and reverent way, and that would include meditation. The reason this is here is to say, when you think, make sure to think in a holy and reverent way about God and his name. But also, make sure you meditate on it. It's being called out, not just as a, you have a duty to do this when you're thinking or when you're meditating. It's saying, you have a duty to think about these things. And you have a duty to think about them in a meditative way, in a prolonged, intentional thinking chain. We are called to use the word in a holy and reverent way when we speak. We use, we use our speaking about God's word, about God's names in a holy reverent way. And when we write. So every form of communication and every form of our own internal monologue and then when we are going out into the world we're to make profession and we're to make profession of the truth with integrity and our way of life it says answerable conversation we think of conversation we think of the modern usage which is the thing you do on a telephone or maybe bluetooth maybe how do i do this now how do i do this in a modern way is this the way to deal with the telephone in a modern way so the idea that you have a conversation on a phone or an in-person conversation where you're talking, but the language here of conversation 
is the way you live. The word conversation used to more broadly refer to the way you carry yourself, the way you act, and the way you speak. And now we use it in a very narrow way in terms of talking. But we're supposed to have an answerable manner of life. That's what answerable conversation means. To the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. So each of these things is to be done in a way that glorifies God with the intention of glorifying God. In a way that is for our own good with the intention of seeking our own good. And what's your own good? Knowing God more fully. The more you know God, the more you possess God, the more you have of what is good. And we are to intentionally seek the good of others. And so we speak God's name, God's attributes, God's word. We talk about God's creation and government work. We talk about all of the ordinances that God has given. We talk about these things in a way that glorifies God, that is good for us and others, and we use them in that way. So I would encourage you to look at these verses you will meditate upon them with profit. If you walk through them, you will see the way in which there is a connection to this great commandment about the name of God. And I also, very specifically on page 8, even though Leviticus 19 is not cited in these proof texts, I think Leviticus 19, verses 5 to 18, is a magnificent gathering together of things that help us to consider not using the name of God in vain. It talks about burnt sacrifices and peace offerings and, and getting wealth and using it to fill our brother rather than just saying be warmed and filled. It talks about uh, being careful in disputes and not swearing falsely but swearing rightly. There's a, a key verse where there's, a, you know, there's multiple places in the Bible where we're commanded to actually swear and to use God's name as a part of an oath. Um, and one of them is the Jeremiah text that I've bolded in, high, uh, in, in, this, in these proof texts for you. And so this idea of how we ought to use the name of God is, is discussed here in Leviticus 19 in an exceptional way. And that center verse is verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The verses around this are ways that you could profane the name of God. So... I have a conclusion for you at, at page 9. Nothing is more important than the glory of God. Using the name and ordinances of God with faith, with integrity, is to increase the blessing of God upon you and to remove curse around you. Sometimes that has the way of working is when you use the name of God without taking it in vain, it magnifies curse on those who hate it. And that magnification of curse is sort of a God magnifies curse on his enemies and causes them to implode. And so our enemies drop around us under the curse of God and we remain untouched. And in the destruction of these enemies who will not be brought to repentance, curse is reduced and blessing is increased. And so the use of, of the proclamation of the truth it softens and hardens according to God's intention. Using the name and ordinances of God without faith, with hypocrisy, increases the cursing of God upon you and increases curse around you. It hardens people to the profession. It makes people think that Christianity is a joke. And it makes it so that you begin to become accustomed 
to the wrong usage of the things that God has commanded. Worship is the concentration point of the use of the ordinances of God. Worship is warfare. What you worship and the way you worship and the attitude with which you worship have an important impact upon your thoughts, words, and deeds, and the thoughts, words, and deeds of the people around you. You become like what you worship, and you become like how you worship. And you become like the attitude with which you worship. If you worship with hypocrisy, then you will become more and more of a whitewashed mask with dead men's bones underneath. If you worship the true God with the means he's given, with faith, then you will more and more be transformed in the inward man and will find that you become more and more beautiful in thought. But also your outward man will be transformed not as a mask, but as an expression of the living reality within you. And you will be more and more beautiful in word and deed. You will bear fruit in season and your leaf will not wither. You will be lifted upon wings like eagles and made to run and not grow weary. You will find your hands are taught to fight and your fingers learn to war. You will learn to work and keep, to cultivate and guard. You will learn to teach with words of wisdom and rebuke in good order and timing. You will learn to pray down blessing and cursing in due season and receive all you ask. You will learn to sacrifice for holiness and unity and obtain both. You will learn to build and enjoy and fight and gain victory. You will learn to be a sage, poet, warrior, a prophet, priest, king. You will be as Christ, dripping wisdom, resplendent in holiness, and dispensing justice within your realm. And you will delight yourself in the Lord, bringing others to see the beauty of holiness. This is what the third commandment is about. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney. Did you get this uh, in parts for somewhere? This is beautiful. <laughs> this conclusion. Um, but anyway, I have a, uh, a comment. I think um, in our society today, especially, uh, it's become more and more prevalent to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, we hear it in joking. We hear it in, in just, just about everywhere. I mean, just turn on the TV and you hear people go. And I'm not just saying where they say, you know, Christ's name, but just when they go... Oh, oh, Lord, or Lord, you know, that's good good God, or something like that. Uh, and I just want to encourage um, us all to be on, on guard for that, because I think that's one of the um, enemy's uh, um, particularly favorite tactics. Uh, I mean, they're all wicked, but there are some that he really wants to, and that's to gradually chip away at us when we, if we give in to just saying, like, oh, Lord, no. Or, um, oh, good Lord, you know, I, my, my, my mom uh, has been doing that, um, and I, I asked her to stop, and she's trying to, but she, she wasn't even, it got to the point where she wasn't even noticing that she was doing it, um, and so uh, but she's trying to work on that. So, anyway, just a long comment to encourage us all to, to be on guard for that. Absolutely, yeah, and I think um, next week I'll be going into the negative aspects of the law giving a number of things to be wary of, and that would certainly be one of them, is, is to use the Lord's name, even even if we intend it, and we're not saying it falsely, um, even if but we use it lightly. Mm-hmm. That's not a reverent manner. Lightly, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else? All right, then let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to 
see your name as glorious and to be careful to guard it in our hearts and our own expressions and to have our actions be such that they bring honor to your name and not shame to it. We ask that you would help us to use the ordinances that you have given to us with integrity and not hypocrisy. That we would be careful to deconstruct false doctrine in our own minds and false applications and to be careful to construct right doctrine systematically from your word and to carefully, systematically apply your law to do what you've commanded out of faith. Father, we ask that you would help us to take care of the big things first and then the details to honor you by not appearing absurd, but that you would help us to not lose concern for the details, that we would deal with the large things and move to the small things with consistent progress and swiftness. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.